This program is made possible by members and donors, so huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the year 2009. Each year in January, I do a retrospective episode, not of the year just gone by like everyone else does, but of the year one decade past to bask in the fond memories and or learn from the horrors. 2009 was an enormous year, so this is going to be an enormous show. The first major event of note that year was that George W. Bush left office, and we'll be dealing more with his legacy as the episode goes on, but we'll start by remembering him the way most liberals remember him and thought of him at the time, not as a war criminal, though he was, and not even necessarily as a regular criminal who flouted the Fourth Amendment and spied on American citizens, though he did that too. Uh, but as a sort of goofball who just embarrassed us all by not being able to talk very well. He'll be forever remembered for such Bushisms as they're called as, quote, I know how hard it is to put food on your family. <laughs> One of the great things about books is sometimes there are some fantastic pictures. <laughs> on a related subject, he said, quote, you teach a child to read and he or her will be able to pass a literacy test. <laughs> And this is the great thing. He actually finished the way he began. He was consistent throughout at this week's final press conference. He said he was talking about a successor, and he said, quote, I'm telling you, there's an enemy that would like to attack America, Americans, again. There just is. That's the reality of the world, and I wish him all the very best. Unquote. <laughs> So we're keeping it light here in the beginning. Don't worry, the show's going to take a turn for the dark uh, real soon, so we're coming up to that. But uh, one more note on George W. Bush leaving office, and this is one of my favorite clips I found during my research of 2009. A handful of Republicans, embarrassingly, sycophantically, took to the floor of Congress simply to praise George W. Bush, to just shower him with disgusting praise and, and thank him for his, his uh, service to the nation. And one of the congressmen to do this was none other than current Vice President Mike Pence. And, you know, Mike Pence showering gross praise on George W. Bush is not necessarily particularly noteworthy, except for the unbelievably ironic way that he did it knowing what we know now about Mike Pence's place in history and the man he is vice president to. George W. Bush showed the courage of his convictions in defending this country, and he also showed through his fealty to his wife, through his integrity in office, the administration of what it is to provide good and decent government and to be an example to the American people and to our families and our children. I just can't imagine how that could have worked out any better. Now, next up, we're going to hear from The Daily Show doing what they do best, compiling a series of clips, primarily from Fox News, as they uh, often do and did. What you're not going to hear is the series of clips uh, The Daily Show put together uh, of Inauguration Day, not of the incoming president, as you might imagine, but of the outgoing George W. Bush, following him step by step throughout the entire day, leaving the White House, leaving the inauguration, getting on a helicopter, getting on a plane, landing in Texas, meeting with people in Texas. It went on and on and on. They couldn't let it go. Uh, now, what you are going to hear is Fox News' coverage of day one of the Obama presidency. 
Typically, the first 100 days is the significant figure. Uh, but Fox News, also only two days into the new administration, has a different question. 100 days. Will we make it that long? The president makes two moves that could bring suspected terrorists to the U.S. If Barack Obama gets his way, they could apparently be coming to our soil right here domestically. Right now you're in danger. Your family's in danger. A murdered American soldier. A foreign leader wanted by the U.S. Obama's pick for White House counsel. How are they all tied together? Hannity has the shocking connection. Holder is affirmatively dangerous to this country's security. We cannot trust Timothy Geithner. Barack Obama does not have his hand on the Bible. Is he really president? I still don't know what the man is going to do. He's not going to succeed. Socialism has failed. I find it highly entertaining, Wendell, that only 24 hours in or less that we're already talking about stuff like this. That's one day! (laughs) Holy s***! Now moving on to some substance, Obama may be remembered as incredibly pro-gay rights, uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed under his watch, uh, gay marriage became legal thanks to the Supreme Court under his watch, and you know, he was in favor of that, but he was not openly uh, in favor of gay marriage at the beginning. I'm pretty sure he was a closeted supporter uh, of gay marriage, but that being said, he, he didn't say it out loud, and maybe in part to prove that, or, or, I don't know, for reasons that have never become clear to me, he extended a very strange invitation for his inauguration festivities that progressives were pretty irritated about from before day one of his presidency. I have been complaining a lot publicly um, about Barack Obama's decision to have Rick Warren come do the invocation um, at his inauguration because Rick Warren is so vocally and aggressively anti-gay. Not just that he's anti-gay marriage, but he's really um, he's he's mean, hateful, hateful um, yep. about gay people. And he's been a real political activist against gay rights. And so it's been I feel like it's it was a bad move by Barack Obama. So as confusing as that was, as I said, I never understood why he did that. You know, ultimately, he did stick with his pro-gay rights agenda, and Don't Ask, Don't Tell was eventually repealed. We are moving ahead on Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We should not be punishing patriotic Americans who have stepped forward to serve this country. We should be celebrating their willingness to show such courage and selflessness on behalf of their fellow citizens especially when we're fighting two wars. And now to bask in some good memories. Uh, For those of us who care deeply about science and particularly climate change, does anyone remember how good it felt to go from the anti-science George W. Bush administration to the Barack Obama administration? Uh, This is just a tiny snip of an article written after a few months of the Obama administration, after he'd started putting actual scientists in places where scientists should have jobs in the government, that sort of thing. The war on science is over. Or at least it is in the sense that I originally meant the phrase. We're at the close of the Bush administration's years of attacks on the integrity of scientific information. It's biased editing of technical documents, muzzling of government researchers, and shameless dispersal of faulty ideas about issues like global warming. Just a nice embarrassing reminder that science is now absolutely a partisan political issue in this country. 
Republicans don't believe in it, Democrats do, and we're just going to keep flip-flopping back and forth between the two. And on that topic, here's a quick clip from Van Jones. You may know him as a CNN commentator during the Obama administration. He was named the Green Jobs Czar, which I think is interesting as the the conversation about uh, the Green New Deal is ramping up right now. Mr. Chairman, uh, other committee members, I'm just uh, happy to be here and I appreciate the opportunity to to talk. Uh, I was here in 2007 when the term green collar job was uh, very rarely heard uh, anywhere. Uh, This may have been the first place it it was heard in Congress. And now it is everywhere. And that reflects something. It reflects a hunger and a desire on the part of the American people to solve the two biggest crises possibly ever to face this country an economic catastrophe, and a climate crisis. Now, besides the fact that we can recognize that the the green jobs movement and and the Green New Deal concept is at least a decade old, it's really more than that, and that we were trying to push forward on that in the very early days of Obama's administration, and we are only just now maybe beginning to get a little traction with it, The important thing to remember about Van Jones in that job is that he lasted less than nine months before being run out of town by the new McCarthyism as an accused communist. Jones said at the time, quote, On the eve of historic fights for health care and clean energy, opponents of reform have mounted a vicious smear campaign against me. They are using lies and distortions to distract and divide, unquote. And so he resigned because he didn't want to be a distraction. And that really is the operative phrase, that, that they were absolutely mounting a smear campaign against him as a distraction. And this was the first of many actions taken by the Obama administration in an attempt to avoid distractions from their policy goals. They, they wanted to get things done. They didn't want to have distractions. So they ended up letting a lot of people go because of this sort of McCarthyism witch hunt going on uh, from the right. And there was plenty of debate at the time as to whether kowtowing to right-wing criticisms like this in an attempt to avoid distraction did any good or was more like throwing red meat to hungry wolves. And on a related point concerning uh, the relationship between the parties, the way Republicans would have us believe, Obama steamrolled them in those early years. They He ignored them. He appointed czars, which was a playful metaphorical term that went back to at least the Nixon era, but Republicans pretended like Obama invented it because it sounded both illegal and scarily communist. And by executive orders, he did all of these things just to get things done over the heads of the Republicans. That's what the Republicans would have you believe. But in fact, at least at the beginning of the administration, the exact opposite was true, and the left was trying to warn him about it. In his first big legislative effort, the stimulus bill, President Obama showered House Republicans with attention, with gifts, tens of billions of dollars in tax cuts. And how did they reward his courtship? Zero votes on the stimulus bill. He keeps giving, they keep taking. Obama invited Arizona's two Republican senators over to his house, the House, the White House, to watch the Super Bowl, and they blew him off. He reached across the aisle and included a few Republicans in his cabinet. And the Republicans in the Senate thanked him by blocking or delaying some of his other cabinet picks. And so the tough love message for our country's chief executive about the opposition party is, dude, I'm sorry, but they're just not that into you. 
It's time to move on. Don't wreck your life for these guys or your political agenda. Okay, so as you may recall, uh, the economy was still pretty much in free fall as, as Obama took office. And so naturally, the first major task of the new administration was to get the banks and the economy in order. And it did not go smoothly. Here's just one little vignette conversation about that. Now, uh, the, the latest story of these is the Citibank uh, jet. They went out <clears throat> yesterday. It was reported that Citibank was buying a $50 million. Now, remember, they have $45 billion from us. $45 billion. Our money. Our $45 money. Billion. They're, they're going to buy a $50 million jet. Are they going to buy it from an American company to put Americans to work? No. They're buying it from a French company. Uh, and Didn't Obama step in, though? Literally, didn't he step in? And then it's reported today that Obama, basically, the administration called him and said, are you people fucking retarded? What, what, what are you thinking? We just gave you $45 billion, and you're spending a new $50 million on a jet for 12 people at a time? I mean, are you people, how fucking retarded are you people? And so they're going to stop. But, I mean, I think, you know, the, the point of these stories is not so much that, okay, good, they're not buying a $50 million jet. It's that these people are raping us of this money, and their attitude has not changed one iota. But, you know, we know it's spectacular, though, is that for the President of the United States, in, 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 in all honesty, in, in this action of actually calling Citibank's head and saying, what are you doing? That... I feel like my president represented us. I mean, literally, like, he literally called and said, hey, you can't spend our money like that. We didn't give you that money for that. Now, if he does that all the way down the line, I'd be happy. But whether he's going to do that, who knows? I pulled that conversation for a couple of reasons. First, one quick note that most people hadn't gotten the message in 2009 about not using the term retarded in casual conversation. So that was a nice little time capsule moment. But also that it's emblematic of what happens when you save a broken system rather than reforming it or taking it over. You're going about this all wrong. You don't fix broken systems with no-strings-attached money and just hope they're going to spend it properly. And for another example of structural failure during the housing and foreclosure crisis based on hoping the banks would do what was best for people instead of themselves... That's Rod Alba, the vice president for mortgage finance at the American Bankers Association, which represents banks around the country. I called him up and he basically agrees with all of this, that a lot more loan modifications would make good business sense. But still, two years into this mess, many big loan servicers haven't figured out how to make that happen. And there are a lot of other reasons that the big banks, which are also the biggest loan servicers, aren't modifying more mortgages. Because of the way accounting rules work, if they do a loan modification, they basically rewrite the terms of the loan, which means that then they have to admit that they have a problem on their hands. And if I engage in an actual modification, now I have a distressed asset. And if I have a distressed asset, then that gives me a knock to the capital base. That is proving to be one of the problems in this area. It's a problem because the bank has to take a short-term loss. If they don't modify the loan and put the house into foreclosure, they still take a loss, probably a bigger loss, but it might be as much as a year under accounting rules before that loss shows up on their books. They still lose money, but they don't lose it now. And it's now that the banks are worried about. So between these two examples, it's shit like this that made the bankers hated 
and people frustrated at the Democrats for not taking them to the woodshed as they deserved, which in turn made Hillary sort of hated for personally taking money from banks for speeches she gave right before running for president, it not fixing structural problems and not punishing wrongdoers may be expedient in the moment, but can have ripple effects that stretch for decades. More on that later. And just to demonstrate that the dripping racism that permeated criticism of Obama throughout his presidency was there from the beginning, I found this gem. And finally, in a March 11th broadcast of his national radio show, Rush Limbaugh made plain what many have heretofore identified as the racist subtext of conservative attacks on the White House. Here's what Limbaugh said. As the economy performs worse than expected, the deficit for the 2010 budget year beginning in October will worsen by $87 billion to $1.3 trillion. The deterioration reflects lower tax revenues and higher costs for bank failures, unemployment benefits, and food stamps. But in the Oval Office of the White House, none of this is a problem. This is the objective. The objective is unemployment. The objective is more food stamp benefits. The objective is more unemployment benefits. The objective is an expanding welfare state. And it, it, the objective is to take the nation's wealth and return it to the nation's, quote, rightful owners. Think reparations. Think forced reparations here if you want to understand what actually is going on. Well, that was Rush Limbaugh. As Steve Bennon of the Political Animal blog put it, quote, the substance of Limbaugh's argument is obviously insane, but the racism of his attack is hardly subtle. It's almost hard to believe the nation's leading conservative argued in all seriousness that the president of the United States is trying to destroy the economy on purpose as part of a forced reparations campaign, close quote. Well, if Limbaugh is the voice of opposition, it's little wonder that the movement's increasingly shrinking ranks are also increasingly concentrated in the states of the old Confederacy. So continuing with the timeline, the corporate-backed conservative response to the bailouts, rather than being critical of how easy the banks were getting off or demanding structural changes or anything like that, was to target anger at mostly poor people who were mostly taken advantage of by banks and were mostly currently being foreclosed on. Voila, the birth of the Tea Party. This week, Fox News crossed a line by actively embracing, some would say co-sponsoring, some might say co-opting, the tax day, anti-tax, and government spending tea parties across the country. Americans outraged over unfair and crippling taxes as they fight for their future. Glenn Beck's at the Alamo. Neil Cavuto's live in Sacramento, and Greta's in Washington, D.C. Can't get to a tea party? Fox Nation hosts a virtual tea party, and you can check it out on the site for the location of a tea party in your area. Again, as tea Party sweep the nation. We're there with total fair and balanced network coverage. Live. Was Fox News covering a news event or helping to create one? That's what Fox News's Neil Cavuto wanted to know. Young lady, you're here. You don't have to be here. Tell the truth. Was it the rally or me? <laughs> Neil, I am a huge fan of yours. It was both. Was this a grassroots expression of a widely held frustration or an anti-Obama rally organized by right-wing pundits and politicians? Or both? 
The mainstream media, except for Fox News, couldn't quite make up their mind, being generally leery of rallies and marches, which, after all, are crafted as media events. That's why during the Bush administration, the media were repeatedly slammed by the left for undercovering anti-war rallies while flocking like pigeons to events staged by politicians. So maybe Fox News regular Michelle Malkin was right. The reason the mainstream media, most of the mainstream media isn't covering it is because they don't believe it's real. This is real. These people are here and they're here to stay. Ditto, said former House Majority Leader Republican Dick Armey, whose group Freedom Works was a co-sponsor of the Tea Parties. This is a bona fide American uprising of real people. Maybe, as Fox News's Glenn Beck sagely observed, the mainstream media, except for Fox News, just doesn't understand real people. I don't think they are capable of understanding. But since the media and Stephen Colbert are watching, I'm going to speak very, very slowly. Certainly, MSNBC's left-leaning anchors saw the day as a movable feast of freaks and devoted many minutes to teabag jokes. But most of the coverage focused on whether this event, sponsored in part by Army's group Freedom Works and promoted by Republican elder statesman Newt Gingrich, was truly nonpartisan. And whether, having been largely promoted by conservative talk radio and Fox News, it was genuinely grassroots. After all, even some of the event's organizers say they were inspired by another media event, CNBC's Rick Santelli's made-for-TV rant from the Chicago trading floor a couple of months back, when he told Obama that the people didn't want him to bail out the mortgages of losers, but instead... Reward people that could carry the water instead of drink the water. That got the crowd going. We're thinking of having a Chicago Tea Party in July. All you capitalists that want to show up to Lake Michigan, I'm going to start organizing. It was a great TV moment, and the CNBC folks wanted it to last. Hey, Rick, can you do that one more time? Just get the mob behind you again. I love it. I have the camera pull way out. You can't just do it at will, can you, Rick? Yeah, do it at will. Let's see. And he did. Thus far, we've been sort of speeding through events because there's so much to get to. And now we've come to the second major debate in the country after how to deal with the economy and free fall, the legacy of torture, Guantanamo Bay, and indefinite detention. But before things get too dark, a quick break to say that today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist. Blinkist summarizes more than 2,500 best-selling nonfiction books, packing all of the key insights into Blinks that you can read or have read to you as an audiobook in just 15 minutes or so through their app or website. Now, obviously, it'd be great to have the time to read 2,500 best-selling nonfiction books in full, but it's a simple impossibility. So then we move on to deciding which few books to read. Well, Blinkist works brilliantly in two ways. For books that you want to get the key points from, but you know you'll never read, Blinkist is all you need. But it can also work as a great way to sample books and help you decide which ones you want to read in full. At least that's how I use it. For instance, based on the topic we're about to discuss, you may want to check out Guantanamo Diary based on the testimony of a detainee in our detention center in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. But, of course, there are two and a half thousand titles out there to match every taste. So, if you want to check it out for yourself, Blinkist has a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, 
Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. Of course, you can cancel anytime. Blinkist.com slash best. And now, on to the torture debate. The usefulness of a disambiguation page, the idea of getting clear on what information we've got available, is something that would be helpful right now amid this torrent of new information that we've got about torture. After all we knew during the Bush administration, after Obama rescinded the Bush-era torture policies, after the Red Cross report was leaked on what happened in the CIA prisons, after the Office of Legal Counsel released memos last week that Bush's Justice Department had used to authorize torture, after we started hearing from Bush officials who knew about the torture program but wouldn't talk about it until details were declassified, which they now are, after that tide of information, we got something new that is clarifying. It is disambiguating. Are you looking for info on what was done to prisoners that the CIA held in its secret prisons? Well, it's the Red Cross report that authoritatively exposes that. Are you looking to find out who authorized those techniques for the CIA and how they did it? That would be those memos that were released last week. Are you looking to find out about torture of prisoners not in the CIA secret prisons, but in the unsecret prisons run by the military, places like Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and Bagram? Well, for that information, what you were waiting for was the Senate Armed Services Committee report, which has now been out less than 24 hours. Armed Services Committee means it has to do with military issues, and the military was running the prisons like the one at Guantanamo. Here's the reason that disambiguation is important here, that it's important to get clear on what information we've got that we didn't have before. We've been getting two different streams of information about what was going on in these two different kinds of facilities where prisoners were tortured, CIA and military. Two different chains of command, two different parts of the federal government, two sets of physically different facilities in which we were holding prisoners. Heck, it's even, it's even two different types of congressional oversight. It's the intelligence committees that oversee and investigate the CIA. It's the armed services committees that oversee and investigate the military. These have been two separate things, two different separate things. And what we have found... And what we can now see, thanks to all this newly declassified on-the-record information, is that in these two different things run by two different agencies, we were doing the same things to people when it came to interrogations. Things that we never did before. Sticking a prisoner in a cold cell, chain him to the ceiling, sleep deprivation, stress positions. We never did that stuff before. And then all of a sudden, it started happening everywhere. In the CIA prisons, in the military prisons, everywhere. How does that happen? How do we end up with the same totally new techniques that Americans never would have been told to use before being used on prisoners caught up in these two totally different systems? There is a place where these two systems connect, and it's not at the bottom. It's not at the level of the bad apples. It's not at the operational level. There wasn't a National Guard corporal from Ohio inventing the menace them with dogs technique at Abu Ghraib and then calling his friend at the CIA who worked at a secret prison in Poland and telling her to try that out. That, that is not the level at which these systems link. These two things link not at the bottom, but at the top. They link in Washington. From the newly declassified Senate Armed Services Committee report, quote, senior officials in the United States government solicited information on how to use aggressive techniques, redefine the law to create the appearance of their legality, and authorized their use against detainees. Before we ever captured a high-ranking terrorism suspect, months before those memos were written that authorized stuff like waterboarding and hanging people from the ceiling, in advance, in advance, 
Senior officials created this program, not in response to poor results from traditional interrogations. We weren't interrogating people yet. But proactively, the torture program was invented. It didn't bubble up from the grassroots, from the frontline interrogators, with Washington struggling to find a way to let the interrogators do to those al-Qaeda suspects what they knew they needed to do. The impetus here went the other direction. As Philip Zelico told us, this was a carefully constructed interrogation program. Guidance went from senior officials to the CIA side and the military side. The OLC memos, which gave the CIA guidance, the, the OLC memos were to the CIA, right? Remember, they authorized things like sleep deprivation, stress positions, waterboarding, slapping. That was the CIA. Over on the military side, from the Levin report on the military side of it, quote, techniques included such methods as sensory deprivation, sleep disruption, stress positions, waterboarding, and slapping. On December 2nd, 2002, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld approved many of those techniques for use in interrogations at Guantanamo. And from Guantanamo, they went to the other military prisons with the same authorization, Abu Ghraib, Bagram, etc. This was a program. This went from Washington out, not the other way around. It was designed in Washington by a few specific people who put in place everything they needed in order to make it happen, and then they said, okay, go make it happen. That's what we're learning. We now have enough pieces of information from enough different places that the ambiguity on this is vanishing. And with all of the details about our torture programs coming out in the early days of Obama's administration, all we ever heard were the words that remain famous to this day as his response to the idea of prosecutions. We want to look forward, not back. As if upholding the rule of law against powerful people was just another distraction to be avoided like a controversial White House staff member. Obama said since the presidential campaign that he has no interest in prosecuting CIA officers who waterboarded or who carried out other torture techniques under the euphemism of enhanced interrogations ordered by Bush administration officials. He repeated that again last week in a written statement on the matter that his chief of staff says he actually wrote himself. And now the president said it again for the third time, just so everyone's clear. Now, during his CIA pep talk, Obama acknowledged the brewing controversy surrounding the Bush-era memos purporting to identify a legal loophole for torture, these memos that were just released. So don't be discouraged by what's happened in the last few weeks. Don't be discouraged that we have to acknowledge potentially we've made some mistakes. That's how we learn. But the fact that we are willing to acknowledge them and then move forward, that is precisely why I am proud to be President of the United States, and that's why you should be proud to be members of the CIA. Acknowledge mistakes and then move forward. And by moving forward, the president has said repeatedly he means not prosecuting CIA officers who relied on these authorizations, these legal permission slips, to torture. The question then is whether or not the people who wrote the permission slips get prosecuted. This weekend, the White House seemed to rule that out as well. Here was Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel. He believes that people in good faith were operating with the guidance they were provided. 
they shouldn't be prosecuted. But pro- what about prosecuted. those who devised the but, policy? Yeah, but those who devised the policy, he believes that they were uh, should not be prosecuted either. Those who devised the policy should not be prosecuted either. That's big news. Before those comments from Rahm Emanuel, we only knew that the administration didn't want to prosecute CIA officers, the people who had done the actual interrogating. But those comments would seem to indicate that the administration does not want to prosecute anyone. Huh. Just in case you thought Rahm Emanuel misspoke when he said that yesterday, Press Secretary Robert Gibbs reaffirmed that stance. So I understand you're saying the people in the CIA who followed through on what they were told was legal, they should not be prosecuted. But why not the Bush administration lawyers well, again, who, in, in the eyes of a lot of your supporters on the left, twisted the law? Why are they not well, being held accountable? The president is focused on looking forward. That's right. And the direction that you prefer to look in is more important than laws that are binding, not elective, actually laws that are enforced in a country that's supposedly governed by law. And I am not nearly the first to say that trouble really started for this country when we started making it the unofficial policy to pardon all misdeeds of previous administrations going back Again, at least to Nixon and Watergate, which opened the door for Iran-Contra under Reagan, which opened the door for wars of aggression and torture under Bush. It is terrifying to think what might be next. And this is what American exceptionalism looks like. And this next clip is a portion of an article written by Dahlia Lithwick, still one of my favorite legal commentators, about how the debate on torture shifted away from legality almost entirely. After Abu Ghraib, America seems to have lost its capacity to be truly shocked by anything America might do. As chilling and brutal as the images were at the time, they have, in the years between, lost much of their power to repel us. They've become, abetted by endless viewings of Jack Bauer on 24 and an interminable national debate about torture, emblems of what America is at least willing to consider doing. They are no longer postcards from the unthinkable. They are what we have become. When we first saw those now iconic photos from Abu Ghraib, most of us still had no notion that our government would degrade and terrorize prisoners. We had no inkling at that time that, in violation of domestic and international law, the U.S. government had already waterboarded Khalid Sheikh Mohammed 183 times in one month in 2003. Discovery of the sexual humiliation and stress positions used at Abu Ghraib represented a brief and terrible loss of innocence for Americans. But maybe you can lose your innocence only once. After Abu Ghraib, the idea that prisoners could be stripped naked and humiliated, or terrorized by dogs, or piled up like tinker toys, was not just in the backs of our minds, but also back on the table. Less than two years after we learned of the goings-on at Abu Ghraib, Congress had passed legislation legalizing many of the alternative interrogation tactics, the stress positions and sexual humiliations, that had so offended us months before. Prisoner abuse that flattened us in 2004 was normalized, to the point that it was open to political debate only a year later. And once you've been desensitized to hoodings and nudity, Is a little simulated drowning, or being bounced off a wall, really all that much worse? The MPs caught abusing prisoners at Abu Ghraib later claimed that they did so because they were merely following orders from superiors, orders to soften up the detainees who would then be more amenable to interrogation. I keep wondering whether they inadvertently softened up the rest of us as well. 
We've become so casual about torture that we now openly debate its efficacy, something nobody would have dared to do in the first days after Abu Ghraib. The fight playing out between the left and the right now isn't, did we waterboard? We already knew we did. It is barely even, was it legal? Virtually nobody seriously argues that it was. The fight we're having in America now is, did it work? And if we manage to persuade ourselves that torture does work, whether it's legal or even moral, will no longer matter. And such tactics will never be able to horrify us again. And when the debate shifts away from legality, it opens up the conversation to legitimize letting criminals get away with their crimes. I remember a commentator pointing out at the time, if no one is punished for the crime of torture, then it effectively stops being a crime and becomes a simple policy disagreement, uh, sort of like science. Obama may not have tortured prisoners, but he made sure that the next Republican president would be able to say loud and proud that he would. The former vice president reemerged yesterday after weeks in presumed orbit somewhere uh, to give an interview on Fox News, offering his response to the just released CIA report, which concluded that we don't really know how effective torture was. Or if you reside on planet Cheney. Um, I think the evidence is overwhelming that the EITs were crucial in getting them to cooperate and that the information they provided did, in fact, save thousands of lives and let us defeat all further attacks against the United States. The evidence is overwhelming. I think so. You know, the actual evidence at hand from the CIA review of the torture program in 2004 doesn't say that at all. Quote, there is limited data on which to assess their individual effectiveness, talking about enhanced interrogation techniques. In the case of Abu Zubaydah, who was waterboarded 83 times in one month, the CIA says, quote, it is not possible to say definitively that the waterboard is the reason for Abu Zubaydah's increased production or if another factor such as length of detention was the catalyst. But on fact-free Planet Cheney, that counts as overwhelming evidence. That issue of Abu Zubaydah's interrogation led to another fact-free but still ironclad Cheney assessment. It shows that uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and uh, Abu Zubaydah provided the overwhelming majority of reports on al-Qaeda. Both of them uh, were uncooperative at first. That... Um, the uh, application of enhanced interrogation techniques, specifically waterboarding, especially in the case of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, is what really persuaded him he needed to cooperate. So says the transmission from Planet Cheney. You know, if only we could hear from someone who was actually there at that Abu Zubaydah interrogation. If only we could hear from, say, the FBI agent who first interrogated Abu Zubaydah. If only he could tell us what actually happened there. When we interrogated him using intelligent interrogation methods, within the first hour, we gained important actionable intelligence. You say on the instructions of the contractor, harsh techniques were introduced, uh, which did not produce results as Abu Zubaydah shut down and stopped talking, correct? Correct, sir. Oh, enhanced interrogation techniques made him shut down and stop talking, says the man who was there. Back here on planet Earth, the facts about that interrogation are the exact opposite of news from planet Cheney. 
You know, even in an interview that was so softball that conservative blogger Andrew Sullivan denounced it as, quote, a teenaged girl interviewing the Jonas Brothers, Fox's Chris Wallace did manage to ask Mr. Cheney if he was okay with torture techniques that went even beyond those that were purportedly legalized by the Bush lawyers. This Inspector General's report, which was just released from 2004, details some specific interrogations, mock executions. Uh, one of the detainees threatened with a handgun and with an electric drill. Uh, waterboarding Khalid Sheikh Mohammed 183 times. Do you think what they did was wrong? It was good policy. It was properly carried out. It worked very, very well. So even and these I'm cases probably. where they went beyond the specific legal authorization, you're okay with it? I am. Now, at least speaking for myself, I, I generally think of fear as a tool that Republicans use cynically to scare people into voting for them. But it really goes beyond that. It's also their public policy. You know, if 19 brown people come to America and kill 3,000 people, which is terrible, and you become incredibly fearful as a result, then it is legitimate for you to go and kill a million brown people and torture any you get your hands on, but only if you're scared enough. Same goes for cops. You can kill anyone you want as long as you're terrified or willing to say you were. Fear is literally our widely accepted public policy. You know, with all the controversy over the national anthem these past few years, I really think there should have been more focus on the absolute bullshit that is that final line that everyone likes to sing together, like a big collective, if we say it loud enough, it'll make it true, sing-along. And the home of the brave— we don't even pretend that's true anymore, and politicians who try to talk the toughest are the ones advocating openly for cowardice and a slate of policies openly born from fear. So you understand how the Republicans run? Newt Gingrich has summarized it best. You know, we've been telling you on the show for how many weeks, months, years now, that the whole party is based on fear, and they want to do the fear-mongering, they want to scare the American people, but also, they themselves, they're afraid. They're a very, very scared, cowardly party. Now, don't take my word for it. Take Newt Gingrich's word for it. He's going to be on Meet the Press here with David Gregory, and he's going to admit it. Watch. The thing that I think motivates Cheney, uh, and I watch this firsthand after 9-11, is the shock of 9-11. The reality that his children and his grandchildren could die. That he has an obligation to America to take extra steps to keep us alive. And I think this was burned into him that day and the following day in the realization we have been caught totally off guard. Despite all the warnings of the 90s, we have been caught totally off guard. And so they did everything for seven and a half years, to, and they have a very simple principle. If you're in doubt, do what it takes to help America survive every time. So they consistently fell down on the side of being very tough about national security. I think people should be afraid. I think the lesson of 1993, the first time they bombed the World Trade Center was, fear is probably appropriate. I think the lesson of Kobar Towers, where American servicemen were killed in Saudi Arabia, was fear is probably appropriate. I think the lesson of the two embassy bombings in East Africa was fear is probably appropriate. I think the lesson of the coal being bombed in Yemen was fear is probably a cup I'll tell you, if you aren't a little bit afraid after 9-11 and 3,100 Americans killed inside the United States by an effort, if you aren't worried 
about the second wave attack that was designed to take out the biggest building in Los Angeles. Right. I think that you, you are out of touch with. Wait, 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 Speaker Gingrich, you, you make the point about how Vice President Cheney felt personally, personal fear. And isn't President Obama's argument that fear as a basis of national security policy is not sustainable over time? How do you come up with a sustainable legal framework, a sustainable national security policy? Don't we elect leaders to transcend fear for lasting policy? Look, how much should you worry about something truly terrible happening to America? I belong to the wing that believes we live in an age when very few people using very dangerous weapons can cause incalculable damage. And I think we should take very strong steps to make right. sure that doesn't happen. Well, you know, God bless Gingrich's heart. He just admitted we the Republicans are the party of cowards. We're always afraid. We're afraid of Al-Qaeda. We're afraid of the Taliban. We're afraid of the terrorists. You know, fear is always appropriate. Fear is appropriate. How many times did he say it? Four times? Five times? Listen, Newt, there's a difference between being concerned and taking appropriate and strong action and being afraid. So when Al-Qaeda hits us, wherever it might be, we should be concerned and we should take appropriate and strong action. But we shouldn't be afraid. We should be like, oh my God, Al-Qaeda hit us. I'm personally afraid. Look at what he's saying about Cheney. He was personally afraid, afraid for his family, afraid for his grandchildren. And you know what that kind of fear brings out? It brings out panic. And that's exactly what he did. He panicked and he tried to give away American rights. Well, we should do spying on American citizens without court orders, even though that's against the Fourth Amendment. We should do torture. We should do all these things that are un-American. Why? Because Dick Cheney's a coward. And 2009 is so packed, I don't even have time to get into the fear tactics that GOP used to prevent Obama from being able to close Guantanamo Bay as he promised he would. They argued in all seriousness that it was too dangerous to bring prisoners to be imprisoned within the borders of the U.S. I mean, I mean, if there's anything the U.S. knows how to do, it's how to lock people up. And the GOP argued that we should be too afraid, literally, to keep terrorists in our prisons. And that's why we have to keep them in a prison in Cuba. Absolutely pathetic. I will, however, share the plan Obama came up with to deal with those in U.S. custody who we had tortured. Standing inside the National Archives in front of the actual, original Constitution, President Obama delivered a blistering critique of the Bush administration, in which he called their actions and their legacy literally a mess. Our government made a series of hasty decisions. Poorly planned, haphazard approach. Too often, we set those principles aside as luxuries that we could no longer afford. Our government made decisions based on fear rather than foresight. The decisions that were made over the last eight years established an ad hoc legal approach for fighting terrorism that was neither effective nor sustainable. An ad hoc legal approach for fighting terrorism that was neither effective nor sustainable. Ouch. Then, moments later, he announced his own, his own ad hoc legal approach for fighting terrorism. President Obama proposed something new, something called prolonged detention. There may be a number of people who cannot be prosecuted for past crimes, in some cases because evidence may be tainted, but who nonetheless pose a threat to the security of the United States. We're not prosecuting them for past crimes, but we need to keep them in prison because of our expectation of their future crimes. 
Al-Qaeda terrorists and their affiliates are at war with the United States, and those that we capture, like other prisoners of war, must be prevented from attacking us again. Prevented. We will incarcerate people preventively. Preventive incarceration. Indefinite detention without trial. That's what, that's what this is. If you strip away the euphemisms. One civil liberties advocate told the New York Times today, quote, we've known this was on the horizon for many years, but we were able to hold it off with George Bush. The idea that we might find ourselves fighting with the Obama administration over these powers is really stunning. After condemning the Bush administration for what he called their ad hoc legal strategy for trying to make things seem legal that patently weren't, this is what President Obama proposed. My administration has begun to reshape the standards that apply to ensure that they are in line with the rule of law. We must have clear, defensible, and lawful standards for those who fall into this category. We must have a thorough process of periodic review so that any prolonged detention is carefully evaluated and justified. Our goal is to construct a legitimate legal framework for the remaining Guantanamo detainees that cannot be transferred. Our goal is not to avoid a legitimate legal framework. In our constitutional system, prolonged detention should not be the decision of any one man. If and when we determine that the United States must hold individuals to keep them from carrying out an act of war, we will do so within a system that involves judicial and congressional oversight. And so going forward, my administration will work with Congress to develop an appropriate legal regime so that our efforts are consistent with our values and our Constitution. You'll construct a legal regime to make indefinite detention legal. But terrorists weren't the only thing conservatives were scared of that year. They were also afraid of the Democrats who wanted to come and kill all of their grandmothers. Uh, but first, one more quick break to say that this episode is sponsored also by Madison Reed. Since 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter because the status quo of hair color options either left too much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from a salon, but you will have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Love listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the promo code left. And now we take a turn for the surreal. Hey, what if we were governed by a sinister foreigner masquerading as a native-born American, a real-life Manchurian candidate advancing a perverse plan to cull the population of the elderly? That's either a plot for a bad Hollywood thriller or... This week in the Wingnutosphere. I want to know why are you people ignoring his birth certificate? Yeah! Yeah! He is not an American citizen. 
That's from a YouTube video of a Delaware town hall meeting with Congressman Mike Castle, a video that has flown all over the Internet and cable news, fomenting right-wing rage over an imposter in the White House. Of course, the president has long since provided his birth certificate and contemporaneous Honolulu newspapers back in 1961 announcing his bouncing baby birth. But that's not good enough for the birthers, as they've come to be called. Some of them are fringe loonies. Some of them are members of Congress, such as the 11 Republican co-sponsors of a bill that would require future presidential candidates to present a U.S. birth certificate in order to run. And some of them are CNN's Lou Dobbs. It's a lot of questions remaining, and seemingly the questions uh, won't go away because they haven't been dealt with. So demonstrably false is this rumor that even some of the most caustic media voices on the right have tried to squelch it. Among them, Fox News Channel's Bill O'Reilly, MSNBC's Joe Scarborough, and columnists Ann Coulter and Michelle Malkin. Still, with at least one poll showing that 58% of Republicans are not certain of the president's citizenship, White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs was at pains to deal with the birthers this week. The president was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, the 50th state of the greatest country on the face of the earth. There are 10,000 more important issues for people in this country to discuss. Chief, among those 10,000 issues is health care reform. But if Gibbs somehow believed the gravity of that matter guaranteed honest debate, he was sadly mistaken. It, too, was mired this week in a trumped-up controversy over a non-existent provision in the White House plan. Here on Fred Thompson's radio show is supposed health care expert Betsy McCoy. One of the most shocking things I found in this bill, and there were many, is on page 425 where the Congress would make it mandatory, absolutely required that every five years people in Medicare have a required counseling session that will tell them how to end their life sooner. Whoa, the feds culling the population of those burdensome elderly? That is shocking. Also utterly untrue. The bill would simply allow seniors who do wish for professional advice on end-of-life issues, from will writing to hospice care, to get the government to pick up the tab. Yet the euthanasia canard was parroted by House Republican leader John Boehner and at least referenced by Fox News, CNN, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. We begin with the confluence of wacky new conspiracy theories in U.S. politics and wacky old special interest driven D.C. tactics. In 1993, the last time a newly elected Democratic president was pursuing health care reform, two of his most formidable foes were Harry and Louise, a fictional middle aged couple sitting at a kitchen table talking smack about how dangerous it would be to reform the American health care system. Harry and Louise, of course, weren't just a freelance, actual middle-class couple concerned about cutting into the insurance industry's profit margins. They were actors. They were hired by the insurance industry to try to sink the reform plan. Well, incidentally, the same actors who portrayed Harry and Louise back in 1993 this year have been hired by pro-healthcare reform forces to try to sell the idea of reform. 
So the corporate interests opposed to changing the system they profit from so handsomely and their allies in the conservative movement have found new actors to sit at a fictional kitchen table and talk smack about how dangerous it would be to reform health care this time. Here they are. They're the new Harry and Louise. And this time, the reason they say changing the health care system is so scary is because you guessed it. Healthcare reform is really a secret plot to kill old people and to try to make people have more abortions. They won't pay for my surgery. What are we going to do? But honey, you can't live this way. And to think that Planned Parenthood is included in the government-run health care plan and spending tax dollars on abortions. They won't pay for my surgery, but we're forced to pay for abortions. Our greatest generation denied care. Our future generation denied life. Call your senator. Stop the government takeover of health care. Family Research Council Action is responsible for the content of this advertisement. You got that? The real agenda lurking behind health care reform is a secret plot to kill old people and to promote abortion. That ad was just released by the conservative group, the Family Research Council. Now, you know about the conspiracy theory that the president secretly isn't really the president because he's secretly foreign. Those conspiracists are called birthers, right? Well, Christopher Beam at Slate.com has christened the healthcare reform as a secret plot to kill old people conspiracists as the deathers which is sort of brilliant. The deathers theory is being advanced not only by far-right advocacy groups like the Family Research Council, it's also being advanced in Congress by Republicans like Virginia Fox of North Carolina. It will not put seniors in a position of being put to death by their government. The deathers theory is also being advanced by Republicans like Congressman Louis Gohmert on talk radio. We've been battling this socialist health care, the nationalization of health care that is going to absolutely kill uh, senior citizens. They'll put them on lists and, and force them to die early. Continuing the discussion of fear, this next one features uh, then-Congressman Bob Inglis, which I think is particularly interesting because if that name sounds familiar to you, it's probably because I featured a TED Talk and an interview of his in which he was arguing for a way that conservatives could get on board with fighting climate change. And as part of his story, he talked about how he had been run out of Congress by losing to a Tea Party conservative who won the primary by challenging him from the right. I felt like he was trying to talk to a, you know, a lunatic asylum. <laughs> These guys would just jump up and say nonsensical things, and he kept shaking his head, and they were yelling at him, you work for us, Bob! And look, you want to hold your congressman accountable. That's, that's great. I wish we did a lot more of that in the past, right? But there's a sensible way of doing it, and there's a way of doing it, one, that's disruptive and doesn't help anybody, and two, that makes you look absolutely crazy. So at the end here... He tells them, look, I need you guys to calm down. Don't be so afraid. Which I think takes a lot of courage on Inglis's part to say that to a Republican audience. Because they're frightened. They're frightened out of their minds. You can see it. That's where the anger is coming from. They, they see something slipping away and they don't know what it is. And then his interaction with them here is absolutely fascinating. I hope you can hear most of this. Clip number four. What they're doing is... Okay, did you hear him? He said, stop following fearful people. Let's look forward. And, and 
he says, stop being afraid. They're trading on fear when he mentioned Glenn Beck. And then, of course, you heard when he said that. They're like, boo, boo, we want to be afraid. Did you hear the guy in the beginning of the tape where he said, we're all afraid of Obama? God, you know, it, the conservative talk show hosts have an amazing way of touching something, you know, ancient in us, if you will, visceral, like fear and anger, and they get people riled up. So basically, the one Republican who advises against fear gets kicked out of the party. You know, it's not surprising. It's just tragic. And now we move on to the policy itself and the fate of the fabled yet elusive public option. If healthcare reform is ever going to be possible, it's never going to be more possible than it is this year. But from the very, very beginning, single payer health care and national health care were completely off the table. As Matt Taibbi writes in his new gut-wrenching article on health care for Rolling Stone, when key Democratic Senator Max Baucus convened the first roundtable discussions on health care reform last May, Senator Baucus invited 41 witnesses to Capitol Hill to share their perspective on what ought to happen with health care reform. 41 witnesses over three days. Not a single witness was scheduled to speak in favor of single payer. Because single payer was inexplicably totally beyond the realm of consideration, Democrats ended up instead proposing something called a public option, a Medicare-like plan that at least some Americans could choose to buy into instead of buying private insurance. Now, apparently, even that is off the table, too. We know that the president, both when he was a candidate and well into the current debate as president, said that a public option was a must. That's why any plan I sign must include an insurance exchange, including a public option to increase competition and keep insurance companies honest. And choose what's best for your family. Must, he said. Must. He has changed his mind on that now, apparently. Even Max Baucus, the won't-even-consider-single-payer conservative senator from Montana who leads the committee that is now dropping the public option, even Max Baucus was in favor of the public option as recently as last November when he published his big 100-page health care proposal that called for, quote, a new public option, a new public plan option similar to Medicare. So if Max Baucus was in favor of a public option, and President Obama was in favor of a public option, and a public option survived through three House committees and one Senate committee that passed bills on health care reform so far, why is the public option dying now? It's dying because of a collapse of political ambition. The Democrats are too scared of their own shadow to use the majority the American people elected them to in November to actually pass something they said they favored. Senator Baucus has decided to take decision-making about health care reform out of the full committee on which Democrats have a huge majority, and instead, he wants it to be decided by a mini-committee that he made up. That's three senators from each party. As if the American people elected a half-and-half Republican and Democratic Senate this year, which we did not. We elected a big Democratic majority. But then Democrats decided to wield that majority by giving the Republicans control over what kind of health care reform we get. So we get no public option. We get no public option, no single payer, no national health plan. Maybe some insurance reform, maybe not. Depends on what else the Republicans want, probably.
Are most Americans going to have lower premiums? No. They will likely have higher premiums. Now, let's go to a guy who talked about lowering premiums and a way to do that. Oh, I know. It's President Obama when he was candidate Obama. Let's go to clip number nine here. This is during a presidential debate with John McCain. Here is candidate Obama's suggestion for how to handle health care reform. Let's watch. If you have health insurance, then you don't have to do anything. If you've got health insurance through your employer, you can keep your health insurance, keep your choice of doctor, keep your plan. The only thing we're going to try to do is lower costs so that those cost savings are passed on to you. And we estimate we can cut the average family's premium by about $2,500 per year. <laughs> if you don't have health insurance, then what we're going to do is to provide you the option of buying into the same kind of federal pool that both Senator McCain and I enjoy as federal employees, which will give you high-quality care, choice of doctors, at lower cost because so many people are part of this insured group. We're going to make sure that insurance companies can't uh, discriminate on the basis of pre-existing conditions. We'll negotiate with the drug companies for the cheapest available price on drugs. Nope. We are going to invest in information technology to eliminate bureaucracy and make the system more efficient. And we are going to make sure that we manage chronic illnesses like diabetes and heart disease uh, that cost a huge amount but could be prevented. We've got to put more money into preventive care. Uh, this will cost some money on the front end, but over the long term, this is the only way that not only are we going to make families uh, healthy, but it's also how we're going to save the federal budget because we can't afford these escalating costs. All right. He, did you hear him at the end? He, he said this is the only way to do it. Ah, he's not saying that anymore. He talked about an option of going into a federal pool that is the public option, and he explained how you would all have that option. You could keep your own private insurance or you could go with the public option. And that went out the window. Uh, then he went on to talk about how he's going to negotiate lower drug prices with the pharmaceutical companies. He struck a deal with the pharmaceutical companies a couple of months ago to not do that. That will definitely not be in the bill. Out the window. Okay? He said he's going to save you guys $2,500 on your premiums. Right now, there is no mechanism in the bill, in the so-called compromise of Baucus, or what Olympia Snow's working on with Rahm Emanuel, to save you a dime. You $2,500 your premium is going to go down? Now, what, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? So the Republicans watered it down, right? And the corporatist Democrats watered it down, so then you're not going to save anything from your premiums. And then four years from now, when they're, you know, doing the 2012 election, they're going to run the same clip we just ran, the Republicans are, and say, hey, Obama promised you that he would lower your premiums by $2,500. Did he? He didn't, did he? And then they're going to say, see, you should have never voted for Obama because his health care reform didn't work. And the guy who aided and abetted them in that strategy, ironically, is Barack Obama. It's such a disastrous path that they're on. They're going to come up with the bill that's going to help the lobbyists and the corporations and the Republicans the most, and then the Republicans will use that, and those same corporations and lobbyists will use that bill to bash Obama later. And you know what, though? For him being a sucker and for playing along, he has it coming. Kevin, how's your healthcare optimism level today? Yeah, you know, the thing about this that I think is, is, you know, in politics, you need to give 
people things that are popular, right? I mean, I mean, you need to do the wonky stuff. You need to get the policy right, but you've also got to give people stuff they like. And one of the big problems that Democrats have with the bill, the health care bills as they stand now, is you know they've all got an individual mandate, right? So that means you are required to buy health insurance. Well, the last thing that Democrats need to do is to require people to buy health insurance and then require them to buy it from the very industry that they've been demonizing with very good reason for, for, for a long time. If you're going to require people to buy it, you've just got to give them the option to buy it uh, from the government if that's what they want to do. And I think it's just going to really hurt them if they don't give people something that's visible and popular, not you know, not some sort of down-in-the-weeds wonky thing that you, you can't explain in a 100 years. Uh, they really need to deal with this. And, you know, as David was alluding to, the, you know, the really ironic part of the whole thing is that the, the Democrats who are opposed to the public option are supposedly the centrist, the fiscal conservatives. And yet the public option actually makes the whole thing cost less. So, I mean, none of it makes any sense. So if you ever wondered how we ended up with a broken healthcare reform policy that seems to have been dying a slow death for the past several years, now you know how it happened and that it wasn't an accident by any stretch. It was sabotage by some and complicity by others. And by now you must be thinking this has to be all that happened in 2009. No. Amidst all of this, we had a debate over filling a Supreme Court seat. With the choice of federal judge Sonia Sotomayor to fill Justice David Souter's vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court, President Obama seems to have found an unsinkable nominee. An inspiring personal biography, a long history of judicial even-handedness, presumed dependability on the litmus test issues nobody can actually speak aloud, and, not insignificantly, an Hispanic female twofer. But never mind Sotomayor's qualifications, in the weeks leading up to her confirmation hearings, she will be subjected to public evisceration. Tom Goldstein, a partner in the law firm Aiken Gump and founder of SCOTUS Block, says any high court nominee is but fuel for the politics industry. No matter how principled, thoughtful, smart, and qualified the nominee, the other side will immediately paint them as an activist, outlier, outside-the-box, unprincipled person hell-bent on destroying the Constitution. But there was a bonus this week because the likes of Rush Limbaugh and Ann Coulter and even former Speaker Newt Gingrich played the racism card. They suggested that Sotomayor is a reversed racist based on a remark she made some years back. Tell me about that. In a speech that was converted into a law review article at Berkeley, she said that it's my hope that uh, a Latina judge will make a more wise decision than a white male judge, something to that effect. And she's really talking about the simple fact that we are the sum of our experiences. And someone who has lived a different life from a upper-middle-class white male has been through more, has seen more, can add to the discussion. Anybody can have one sentence in their life kind of plucked out of context and made into a lot more. You could line that up with a half dozen cases where she's ruled against the discrimination claims of African Americans and Hispanics and realize that she's not deciding cases on the basis of her race. 
And that wasn't the only major news to hit the Supreme Court in 2009. That is also the year that they heard essentially the case of the decade, maybe more. The Supreme Court heard arguments about the tragic fate of a great film. 2008, Hillary the Movie. Jim? She is steeped in controversy, steeped in sleaze. She's deceitful. She'll make up any story, lie about anything. It's true. I've even heard her say that Dick Morris was once her friend. <laughs> Hillary the Movie never aired because a court ruled it was a political ad funded by a corporation and therefore illegal under campaign finance laws. So, instead... <laughs> Instead of sinking the Clinton campaign, these filmmakers had to watch that honor go to someone else. This case, this case, Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission, will decide whether the framers of the Constitution intended for corporations to have a role in our electoral process. I say, I say, of course they did. They were obviously dreaming of a future where instead of serving a king, our leaders could serve Burger King. Mmm. Flame broiled taste and a sesame seed bun? Now that's what I call a more perfect union. Now, laws regulating corporate contributions go back to the 1907 Tillman Act, when Americans thought corporate money was buying elections thanks in part to Theodore Roosevelt's campaign slogan, walk softly and carry a Futterman striped bathing costume. When you think comfort, think Futterman's. But this is really about the 1886 Supreme Court case, Santa Clara v. Southern Pacific Railroad, which ruled that corporations have the same protection under the 14th Amendment as people. Though, actually, the 1886 court refused to rule on that specific issue. But when the chief justice made an off-the-record comment to that effect, the court reporter wrote it down, and it's been cited ever since. It was a huge win for the railroads, and a brilliant judicial decision by the court reporter, whose previous job experience was being the president of a railroad. So, corporations are legally people. And it makes sense, folks. They do everything people do except breathe, die, and go to jail for dumping 1.3 million pounds of PCBs into the Hudson River. And as people, as people, corporations have certain inalienable rights. Attorney Ted Olson said it in last week's arguments. Corporations are persons entitled to protection under the First Amendment. Under the First Amendment. That means corporations have free speech. But they can't speak like you and me. They don't have mouths or hands. Instead, they, they must speak with the only way they can. Through billions and billions of dollars. Now, in 1976, the Supreme Court ruled that money is speech. Therefore, since corporations are people and people have the right of free speech and money is speech, corporations have the right to give unlimited amounts of money to political candidates. QED. Yes, folks, the court is on the verge of unregulating corporate money. And that is great news. 
Because if we give corporations all the rights of people, our government can truly claim it's by the people, for the people, and of the people. And that is still not all. Aside from dealing with the legacy of Bush's foreign policy, which we touched on, Obama was implementing some policies of his own, though they ended up sounding eerily familiar. And all of this right before he headed to Oslo to pick up his Nobel Peace Prize. President Obama tonight spoke at the site where President Bush unveiled the Bush Doctrine. The proclamation that the United States would no longer reserve the right just to wage war against countries or forces that threatened us, but that we would wage war to stop the emergence of threats in the future. If we wait for threats to fully materialize, we will have waited too long. The war on terror will not be won on the defensive. We must take the battle to the enemy, disrupt his plans, and confront the worst threats before they emerge. Before they emerge. Before they emerge. We must confront threats that might happen someday. And thus was born not only the justification for, in the name of 9-11, attacking a country that had nothing to do with 9-11, but also the maximalist Bush doctrine concept of America at war globally, indefinitely, against anyone at our own discretion. Our security will require transforming the military you will lead. A military that must be ready to strike at a moment's notice in any dark corner of the world. We must uncover terror cells in 60 or more countries. All nations that decide for aggression and terror will pay a price. The Bush doctrine was probably the single most radical thing about the Bush presidency because it dropped the requirement that the United States actually be threatened before we'd start a war with someone. Instead, saying that if we just thought we might be threatened sometime in the future, that would be justification enough for us now to start a war. It is a really radical concept, if you think about it, not only about war, but about us, about America. And it may have survived the Bush presidency. President Obama tonight explaining his second escalation of the war in Afghanistan, announcing that the 32,000 Americans who were in Afghanistan when he took office will become 100,000 by next year. A war reborn in what the president is describing as his own image, his own strategic terms, but which is justified fundamentally by what sounds like the Bush doctrine. The administration admitting that we are not actually threatened now as a nation by Afghanistan. Obviously, uh, the good news that Americans should uh, feel at least good about in Afghanistan is that the the al-Qaeda presence is is, uh, very diminished. The maximum estimate is uh, less than 100 operating in the country. No bases, no ability to launch attacks on either us or, or our allies. No ability to attack us or our allies. Afghanistan poses no threat to us. And yet, our war there is being doubled and tripled in size. Why? It's because we think there might be a threat from Afghanistan in the future if a safe haven for terrorism there reemerges in the future. Now we are finally starting to wind down the year, but uh, I would say that the murder of George Tiller, uh, on one hand, and 
just the general ethos of violent, hateful rhetoric aimed at Obama and others. Uh, on the other, definitely deserve honorable mentions here, especially in the light of the much better understanding we've come to more recently of the concept of stochastic terrorism, the use of mass communication to incite random actors to carry out violent or terrorist acts that are statistically predictable, but individually unpredictable. A religious jihad by fundamentalist crusaders who believe that murder is justified, their acts of violence having the intended effect of changing behavior. Our fifth story in the countdown, not the Taliban, not Hamas, not Al-Qaeda. If the brutal murder of Dr. George Tiller, the Wichita OBGYN, who among many other things provided abortions, does not qualify as an act of domestic terrorism, what does? Dr. Tiller having been gunned down in the vestibule of his church where he had been serving as an usher, his medical practice having been targeted many times before. In 1986, a bomb exploding on the roof of his clinic, he reopened. In 1993, Dr. Tiller shot in both arms by an anti-abortion activist. He returned to work. Two months ago, Dr. Tiller acquitted on charges that he had performed 19 illegal late-term abortions in 2003. Kansas law permitting late-term abortions when two independent doctors agree a pregnant woman would be irreparably harmed by giving birth. Abortion in this country legal for the past 36 years. This man accused of deciding which laws apply and which do not. Police arresting Scott Roeder in connection with Dr. Tiller's murder. NBC News having learned that Mr. Roeder is a member of the Freeman Militia with a previous 1996 conviction for possession of materials to make a bomb, who reportedly posted on the blog of the anti-abortion group Operation Rescue. Police finding the phone number for the senior policy advisor for Operation Rescue, herself convicted 20 years ago of conspiracy to bomb a clinic in Roeder's car. Attorney General Holder directing the U.S. Marshals Service to increase security at Planned Parenthood and other facilities around the country to prevent related acts of violence. In April, an assessment from the Department of Homeland Security having warned of the threat from right-wing extremists, including, quote, lone wolf extremists capable of carrying out violent attacks. One passage warning that right-wing extremists, quote, may include groups and individuals that are dedicated to a single issue, such as opposition to abortion or immigration. The outcry from Republicans so vehement at that point that Homeland Security Secretary Napolitano apologized for the report. Conservative blogger Michelle Malkin, among those who believe the report was referencing her, complaining of being targeted by a, quote, DHS hit job. In March, Ms. Malkin having linked, quite literally, Democrat Kathleen Sebelius to Dr. Tiller after the governor of Kansas had been nominated by President Obama to be Health and Human Services Secretary, Malkin citing, quote, her abortion extremism and ties to late-term abortionist George Tiller. When Mrs. Sebelius was confirmed, Malkin having alleged that the HHS secretary had, quote, lowballed the amount of campaign cash she received from infamous abortion doctor, George Tiller. Today, Ms. Malkin decried, quote, the thoroughly evil, cold-blooded act of domestic terrorism. Yes, terrorism, not extremism, that killed Dr. Tiller, making no reference to the previous links she had made on her blog. Anti-abortion groups calling Dr. Tiller, quote, Tiller the killer, still calling him, in fact, that blaming the doctor for his own murder. We don't have the ability, like God himself, to control people as if they were robots. But the point that must be emphasized over and over and over again, pro-life leaders and the pro-life movement are not responsible for George Tiller's death. George Tiller was a mass murderer, and horrifically he reaped what he sowed. The trouble
troubled conservative Washington Times newspaper, for example, allowed their editor emeritus, Wesley Pruden, to assess President Obama's trip abroad this way. Quote, Mr. Obama, unlike his predecessors, likely knows no better. It's no fault of the president that he has no natural instinct or blood impulse for what the America of the 57 states is about. He was sired by a Kenyan father, born to a mother attracted to men of the third world, and reared by grandparents in Hawaii, a paradise far from the American mainstream. That was published in an actual newspaper. On an actual cable TV channel, host Glenn Beck assessed democratic efforts at health reform with equal intellectual rigor. America has spoken clearly, consistently. We are... Excuse this analogy, but I feel like it's true. We're the young girl saying, no, no, help me. And the government is Roman Polanski. From the same network, another host, Bill O'Reilly, couldn't help himself either, calling into Mr. Beck's radio program with this warning uh, to the Democratic Speaker of the House. I think people, when they figure out how how badly they're going to get hurt in the next few years, there's going to be a tea party on taxes and it's going to get nasty. Nancy Pelosi is going to be bobbing up and down in the Boston Harbor. And then there's this uh, biblical quote making the rounds in anti-Obama circles, as reported this week in the Christian Science Monitor. Pray for President Obama, Psalm 109, verse 8. What's Psalm 109, verse 8? Well, it reads, let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his days be few. Uh, It's followed immediately uh, by another verse. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. And don't forget, that sentiment is now being merchandised on bumper stickers, on mouse pads, on teddy bears, on aprons, framed tiles. Those are nice. Keepsake boxes, T-shirts. Let his days be few. (laughs) How cute on a teddy bear. Is anybody else creeped out by this? Joining us now is Frank Schaefer, whose father, Francis Schaefer, helped shape the evangelical movement in the United States. Mr. Schaefer grew up in the religious far right. He's the author of Patience with God, Faith for People Who Don't Like Religion or Atheism. Mr. Schaefer, thanks very much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me on. Um, Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. This is such strong language in secular terms about President Obama. Can you tell me if this means something less threatening to people hearing this in a biblical context? No, actually, it means something more threatening. I think that the situation that I find genuinely frightening right now is that you have a ramping up of biblical language, language from the anti-abortion movement, for instance, death panels and this sort of thing. And what it's coalescing into is branding Obama as Hitler, as they have already called him, as something foreign to our shores. We're reminded of that. He's born in Kenya. As brown, as black, above all, as not us. He, he is Sarah Palin's not a real American. But now it turns out that he joins the ranks of the unjust kings of ancient Israel, unjust rulers to which all these biblical allusions uh, are directed who should be slaughtered, if not by God, then by just men. So there's a direct parallel here with Timothy McVeigh's T-shirt on the day of the Oklahoma City bombing, in which he said that the tree of liberty had to be watered occasionally by the blood of tyrants. And that quote we saw again at a a meeting at which Obama was present, uh, being carried on a placard by someone carrying a loaded weapon. 
And now, to wrap up this year that never seems to end, we'll hear a few clips from 2009, starting with the late, great Gore Vidal taking stock of the Republican Party and predicting the type of candidate they need to be able to win the presidency again, followed by a discussion about the evangelical movement which props up the Republican Party and what kind of Jesus they've chosen to believe in, and finally, a broad analysis of the state of our culture and what may come to it if we don't recognize and work to fix some of the fundamental problems society faces. What, what do you think of the conservatives today, the Sarah Palins? I mean, I know you had your epic feuds with people like William F. Buckley, but you have to admit, they were a damn sight smarter than the Sarah Palins and the John Bain. Well, everybody is. <laughs> <laughs> True, but I mean, there was a time... When you may not have agreed with the conservatives, with the Republican Party, but there wasn't this anti-intellectual know-nothing streak that went through their midst that they're proud of. Well, it's because they weren't conservatives. I think of myself as a conservative. Admittedly, I can read the New York Times without moving my lips, which is a sign of communism. I I have to live with that. (laughs) What What do you think of Sarah Palin? I don't think about her at all. Uh, And I get no impression that she's thinking either. What do you think about Barack Obama? I like him. You do like him? I pity him. My God, have this job with the whole world falling in on your head? I don't, I feel sorry for him. But I think if anybody, you see, it's fascinating because the Republicans, the only thing they have perfected since 1936, (laughs) when they were totally defeated by Governor Alfred M. Landon of Kansas, uh, and Roosevelt just knocked them off every time. Well, they became totally irrelevant then. They are a minority party, except they're not even a party. They're a mindset. They don't like this group, and they don't like that group. And it could be sex, it could be race, it could be religion. They're just filled with dislike and discomfort. They haven't any chance of getting anywhere unless they could catch another movie star, as they did with Reagan or perhaps Eisenhower. But since no Republican or the Republicans nowadays do not, if I go by the Bush administration, they don't go to war. So you'll never get a general out of that crew. What Fromm says is that uh, people who need to be lifted from the drudgery and trauma of their everyday lives uh, look for what he calls a magic helper, which is more than a leader. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a sort of ultra-strong authoritarian leader who provides them with symbols and drama mm-hmm. um, to give meaning to their lives. And that's, that's what people were looking for in George W. Bush, and it's how he advertised himself, to, especially to the Christian right. It's what people look for. Um, in the in the you know Christian right movement um, in James Dobson, and it's reflected in the in the type of Jesus they worship. It's not the Prince of Peace they worship. It's a macho Jesus who appears in Mel Gibson's movies, and it's sort of a theme. the Revelation Jesus. The Revelation angry, violent Jesus. Yeah, you know one thing that you can't miss, uh, Max, is 
course, every time you write something, you have that that methodology where you just completely immerse yourself in the topic. Here, here, what you did is you you, you interviewed hundreds of Christian right leaders. You attended dozens of rallies, conferences, over hours and hours of radio, right wing radio program, all movement oriented uh, kinds of uh, settings that you exposed yourself to for how long? Uh, I mean, before you did this. Well, I've been covering this movement for about six years. Just all the factions of the right. And when you walked away from it, you had some very clear conclusions, and that is that the Jesus that has been embraced by this Christian right is a different kind of Jesus. I call it Revelation Jesus. You call it the Macho Jesus. What what is it about? What is it about that characterization that, first of all, it is it does so much harm to Christianity, but but second of all, is so much a part of this uh, this new right wing movement that we see taking place in America? Well, it's a uh an ultra-strong Jesus who lashes out at, at, at enemies. It's a Jesus that didn't really appear in most of the Bible and has been repackaged by people like Mel Gibson, who's a Catholic traditionalist. And he's been necessitated, this strong Jesus, by the weak men who worship him, like Tom DeLay, who used to be known as Hot Tub Tommy in Texas before he was converted by James Dobson into mm-hmm. the Hammer, this authoritarian, radical Republican leader of uh, the Republican Congress. What we're up against is the power of this illusion that you speak right. of, that is not God, that is a, a, a false God, if anything, leads people to engage in uh, a narcissistic disposition, you know, completely entrenched in denial. And I don't know if it's surmountable. I mean, how do you see it as being you know, transcended? Well, because the, the, the bail, all of this stuff isn't going to work. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. It isn't going to work. And the, the danger of continuing to exist in a culture of illusion in believing that we can have everything we want, that it's just a matter, as Oprah tells us, and the Christian right tells us, and corporatism tells us, and the consumer culture tells us, and celebrity culture tells us, that if we just dig deep enough and find that inner strength, uh, you know, we'll build sort of the paradise of our desire. The danger of that is that already the walls are falling around us, and yet we cling to this illusion. Uh, perpetuated, of course, by a consumer society, which has a vested interest in perpetuating because they make money off it. Mm-hmm. And I, and my fear is that that when things finally crumble to such an extent that we can't ignore it, um, we have, in effect, uh, by clinging to illusion, remained in a state of childishness. And we will then reach out for saviors, for demagogues, for people who will save us, because we've never grown up. We've never confronted the reality around us. But isn't that somewhat, I mean, I think that that is true, and I also think it's somewhat optimistic. I think that when I see politicians speaking in a, 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 a shaky confidence about what is happening, what's going to happen, what may happen, that their fear is tangible to me. So my yeah. fear in what you're saying is that we don't really know what it looks like for the number of people that are going to all of a sudden have right. nothing, be right. desperate, right. be angry. I mean, the, 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 the possibilities of this becoming totalitarian just in terms of a police state seemed to me to be high. Yeah, that, very high. That, that if they're going to get out, they're desperate, and, they're, and crime is obviously going to go right. up, but depending on how quickly it happens, it seems that a totalitarian uh, fascism w- would be easily legislated. Yes. Well, everything's ready to go. And, you know, as Orwell wrote, the, the, the two fundamental tactics that totalitarian systems use are fraud and force. Well, we've already seen the fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is, when will we see the force? And 
I didn't vote for Obama. I voted for Nader. But I have a kind of sympathy for him. I mean, I'm certainly much happier that he's there rather than the dreaded George Bush. Right. But he has surrounded himself with people who serve the system. They serve the corporate state. Uh, not only has he surrounded himself with systems managers of a system that's failed, uh, but many of these managers, people like Geithner, uh, Larry Summers, uh, Robert Rubin, you know, all of whom uh, spent their uh, professional careers empowering the engine uh, that created the financial collapse that we live in, mm-hmm. essentially through deregulation, destruction of Glass-Siegel, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm worried that whether it's because of a lack of will, whether it's because of timidity, I don't know. I don't know his psychology. We are going to waste what few resources we have left. And with that, we will wrap up. Thanks to everyone for listening. A huge thanks to the volunteers who helped, especially with today's episode. It was an enormously heavy lift. I couldn't have done it without their help. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. We'll get back to those in the coming episodes. If you would like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just a few last personal notes from the year 2009. Uh, That was the year, obviously, Obama was inaugurated. On the personal note, I actually was able to attend his inauguration as a volunteer usher, and I still had the bright red wool cap they gave us to signal that we were people who knew how to give directions, even though that was only partially true at best. Uh, 2009 was the launch of the membership program for the show. So we've hit the 10-year anniversary of me trying to make this show a part-time job. We're going to have to wait until 2010 for the 10-year anniversary of it actually being a full-time job. 2009 was the year this show won its first podcast award for Best Produced Podcast, uh, and I found out that I had won waking up in Copenhagen because I was there to cover the COP15 UN climate change conference for my old job. So lots of exciting things were happening that year. And finally, last and also probably least, 2009 was the year that I got a Twitter account for the show. And the only interesting thing about that is that I learned something I had absolutely no memory of. And ask yourself, did you know that in the early days of Twitter, We, collectively as a society, tried to use the word Twitter as a verb instead of tweet. Like, that hadn't been invented yet, just like Google. So, like, to Google something is to search for it. To Twitter something was to post on Twitter. I had no memory of that until I heard myself say it. I'm thinking about being able to Twitter what upcoming topics I have in the works. And then I wondered if it was just me being a total square and not knowing how to talk until... I heard Stephen Colbert say the very same thing. Bob Graham, no one wants to read every detail of your life. Oh, I should Twitter that. So the real question is, who came up with tweeting and when did that take over? I have no idea. Uh, So that is going to be it for the 10-year retrospective. 
I hope you learned something. I know I did. And members are going to get even more because 2009 just won't stop. So I have leftover clips on the 2009 study showing that a substantial number of conservatives thought that Stephen Colbert's satirical right-wing character on the Colbert Report was his way of secretly promoting conservative ideas, like he was a double agent or something. Uh, I have a clip of what kind of worrying experts were doing at the time about how internet addiction was going to melt our brains and how social networks were making us lonely. <laughs> Silly. I have a clip of a right-wing pro-torture shock jock who volunteered to be waterboarded to prove that it wasn't really torture, who only lasted about five seconds before tapping out and adamantly agreeing that it really was torture, and much, much more. So to hear all of that, plus all past bonus content, plus get every regular episode ad-free, and vote each week on what topics you want to hear covered on the show, get all of the details about supporting the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash left. So as I said, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. So thanks again to everyone for listening and to those who support the show by signing up on Patreon. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the best to the Left Podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.